Well, uh, we are nearing the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And as you know, the Sermon on the Mount we've been covering for this entire year. And reasons. Well, reasons are because we're trying to understand what it means to be a healthy church. And we know a healthy church is a, is a church that, that's made up of disciples. That if we're not disciples, we can't be healthy. Um, we can have fun. We can be together. We can have big numbers. Um, but we're not going to be healthy. Not the way that God wants us to be. And so the Sermon on the Mount is, is really about its kingdom living. It's, it's how to be a disciple. It's what disciples do. It's what they think about. It's what they value. And so we've covered a lot of that. And I hope... I hope that some of this has, has at least challenged. You might think I'm wrong. You might think I'm reading the Bible and studying it wrong. But I hope that you, this, what I'm telling you has at least challenged what you think church is or what you were taught church was or what your experience has been about what church is. Because if we're ever going to be a healthy church, one of the things we have to do is we have to know what it is. And so, if nothing else, you got to think about it. you you, you got to not just think about what you want or what you're used to or what, you know, your favorite pastor told you. No. you got to look back at God's Word and, and see, what does God's Word tell us? What does it tell us that a, that a church is? What does it tell us that disciples are and disciples do? And we need to be challenged by that. And it has to be a constant thing. You see, if that really hasn't happened, then, you know, I haven't really maybe done a good job of presenting to you. But ask, give me another chance. You know, you can give me a thousand chances. Just go onto our website and you can, you can listen to the sermons again and again. And you don't have to watch them with video because I know that would be annoying to have to look at me all day. But you can just hear my voice, right? Um, if you do, we can show you how to do this, but if you do watch the video, there's ways you can put other faces on mine. So it can be like a dog preaching to you and stuff like that, if that's what you want to do. Uh, those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. It wasn't that important to the sermon. The point is, is that we, we need to know. We should want to know. We shouldn't assume that we know. And it's something that, for me, has really challenged me. You know, the last few weeks, every time we've come to a passage of Scripture, you know, I've kind of begun by saying, people think this is about meeting needs. And it's not about needing need, meeting needs. It's about seeking the kingdom. People think this is about judging, but it's not about judging. It's about helping each other clean up our lives. That, that we've been taught so much of this kind of me-centered Christianity that we've really missed the message of Christianity, the message of the Bible. And so we come again to one of these passages that in some ways is very familiar and you've, you've probably heard it and sung it and thought things about it and possibly again it's not what you think it's about. Well, I remember when, uh, that when we were growing up, unfortunately, my mom was the Santa Claus and not my dad. 
See, if my dad was the Santa Claus, then he would buy us whatever that he thought we wanted that would make us happy, and he really wouldn't think about how much it costs. Um, he, you know, just wanted to be in the moment. I guess he was the existentialist Santa Claus. But he's there, and, he's, and, and he would just sell if that's what they want. But, but we didn't really have a lot of money. My dad was a pastor of a small church in, in Oklahoma and, and all, and so there, there wasn't a lot to go around. And I guess sad for us on Christmas, but fortunate for us throughout the rest of the year so that we'd have food, my mom was Santa Claus. And she's the one who really determined what gifts we would get. And we all knew, we all knew, either in your stocking or under the tree, you were going to get underwear and socks. Because for my mom, Christmas was, yeah, maybe I'll get them one thing they want, but everything else is going to be what they need. You know, I don't know how, what, you, know, how you are with, with your kids or if you're still a kid, what you, know, you, you know, what you really think about. But I can guarantee you that a lot of the things we wanted, had we gotten them, you know, we might have played with them for a little while, then they would have been forgotten. But I'm going to tell you, the whitey tidies, we use them. We used the socks, we used the underwear, we used whatever, and we used it all year. So even though we might have thought like, ah, it's not what we wanted on Christmas, it's really what we needed. My mom knew, she knew. And the question we sometimes ask when we think about gifts, and who is a good gift giver? Well, it kind of depends on your definition of good. It kind of depends on whether your idea of good is to have the latest, greatest toys or whether good is someone who knows you and knows what you need and make sure you have that. If I say, we just sang this song, you are good, good. If I were to say, right now, think about when you think God is good, what is the first thing that comes to mind? When you th think God is good to me, what is the first thing that comes to mind? A lot of that first thing that comes to mind tells us a lot about, about what we think of God and what we think of what good is. Maybe we say because he's given me a good life, which doesn't really help because we're still using the word good. Maybe it's because you're generally happy or because you got all the things that you need. How we define that good is important because it tells us something about how we view God and how we view what he values. What he's going to give us is not what is good to us. That's the thing we kind of got to get out of our heads. We don't get to define good. It's what he says is good. And we've been talking about this whole time, this whole time we've been talking in the Sermon on the Mount, what does he consider good? And one of the things that comes back again and again and again is what he considers good is the kingdom. 
That's what he considers good. What he considers good are those things that, that help the kingdom be established and help the kingdom to grow. That's what he considers good. He considers that even more valuable than food and water. He considers it more valuable than anything else. So if our God is good and he's going to give us good gifts, my guess is that they're going to be kingdom related. Unfortunately, we, we live in this world that is not, just has not just redefined what is good. It's continuing to do it, constantly doing it. If you've been coming to either Sunday nights or, um, or Wednesday nights, or if you have been studying this yourself, you know there's, there's, there's three or four major worldviews. And one of them is this, is this postmodern worldview. And, and part of the idea of the postmodern worldview is, hey, if it's good to you, it's good. You define good. And if we need to have good on a bigger scale, then we as a society, however we're going to define that, we are going to define what is good. But there's no sense that there's, there's anything that's, that's absolutely good. Oh yeah, we're for the most part going to agree on certain things. But everything else is kind of open. That's kind of where the world is. In fact, it's, it's even where the, the church is. I just finished teaching a class on uh, introduction to the Bible, and, and I try to make this point so it's kind of fresh in my head whenever I teach on this, is that, is that if you believe the Bible is, is, is God's word and inspired and, and the authority and is inerrant, then you, know, you agree with lots of Christians throughout history. But there's something that was always added to that. And sometimes we forget it. And what was added to it was this phrase, when rightly interpreted. So if, if we as a church are looking at, at the Bible and we're realizing we've forgotten the right interpretation or we've just come to the wrong interpretation, it's okay if we need to correct the interpretation. But here's the problem. The problem is the world redefining what is good has gotten to the point where we don't even believe the Bible is good anymore. It's, it's okay. If you want to believe it, that's fine. You know, and we kind of pick and choose the parts of the Bible that we want to understand and we want to follow. That's obviously not okay. If we're disagreeing over interpretation of the Bible, let's disagree. Let's talk about it. Let's discuss. But when your disagreement extends to, we no longer really need the Bible here. We can just have our own conversations about good and evil. Got a problem. And so if that's happening in the church, you can imagine what's happening in the world. The world constantly defining and redefining what is good. As, as heinous as you might have thought yesterday's mass killings were, I can guarantee you that if you go online, you will find a group, a community, and it's not always who you think it, who you think it is that will think it was good. 
We've already talked about things that the Bible clearly says are wrong. Society has judged and said, no, they are good. And if you think they're wrong, you are bad. It's the world we live in. It seems it would be important to know what good is. And so we look at the text today, Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. And it says here, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be open. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Again, we, uh, we often hear that this passage is about prayer and, and how to pray. And it kind of is, but it kind of isn't. He's, he's talking about all that and he spends a lot of time there, but he's really, really trying to get back to this main point that he's been, he's been hitting on for you know, the last you know, several uh, paragraphs. And it's this idea of the kingdom and how important the kingdom needs to be to us. So all this stuff about asking is actually setting up this verse 11 where he says, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? But see, just like those other passages, you know, as soon as we read something like, oh, look at the lilies of the field and the birds of the air and how God takes care of them, all we think about is, oh, God takes care of me. And that's all we think about. As soon as we read the passage, it starts out with, judge not. We think, I go, then nobody can judge me. You know, I protected. Jesus protected me. And we think that's what it's about. And as soon as people read here, ask, oh, oh, it's about how I'm going to get stuff. And then they see the word good things. And they completely forget what Jesus has been talking about. And all they think about are things they think are good. Well, if this isn't about praying for stuff or things we think are good and God promising to give us those things we think are good, if that's not what it's about, what is it about? Well, when we look at that first part in verse 7, ask, seek, knock. You can get caught up in the details or you can just take a step back and, and ask yourself, what is he saying? What he's saying is you don't sit around waiting that you actively pursue. You actively pursue what God's will is. You don't sit and wait for it to come to you. It's not passive. We find this throughout Scripture. You know, Paul will, will say, you know, it's not you, it's Christ in you. And Jesus will say things like, oh, you've got to die to yourself and, and all these other things. 
But then it'll say stuff like, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It'll say, be diligent to preserve the unity. It'll say, you know, show yourself a workman approved of God. All of these things, it'll say that we are actively doing something. We don't just passively sit and wait for God to come upon us. And he gives us like three ways. And, you know, I suppose you could take them in a lot of different ways, but I think the simple meaning is ask, pray. Part of your prayer life, we we talked about this a chapter ago. What is the Lord's prayer about? The Lord's prayer about God's kingdom coming. And then I asked the question, as about a month or two ago, I asked this question, when's the last time you prayed for God's kingdom to come to this earth? It's been about two months. Have you prayed for God's kingdom to come since? We pray for it. We pray for it not just when we hear about these terrible things that happen in the news. We pray for it not just when we are experiencing problems and tragedy. We pray for God's kingdom to come even when things are going good. Because if we really understand the kingdom, what we understand is that his kingdom is so vastly superior to even our best. We seek it. We ask for it. I think that idea of of seeking, that idea of seeking is, hey, not just to sit back and pray for it, but, but seek. And I think seek means try to understand. And as you understand, do that we, we study, we want to know more. What is God's kingdom? I am so glad that, that you know, some, you know, more of you are coming to me and asking me, you've been talking about kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. What exactly is it? What exactly does it look like? It's good. You're at least seeking enough to talk to me. But it should be the burning desire of our hearts. If God's kingdom is the most valuable thing to him, it should be the most valuable thing to us. Even if we don't understand it, we should seek to understand it. And that that we know we should do. Seek. And that last point is like, knock. Knock on the door. Knock on the door. He's saying, be even bolder. Take a risk. You see, if we just pray, if we just ask, no one might know. If we take it a step farther and we're, we're seeking in the sense that we're studying and we're trying to understand, no one might know. Oh, but if you knock, somebody else knows. We're bold. You know, I've I'm studied like seven different languages. And, and I don't know if I should brag about this, but, but I'm illiterate in six of them. So I'm not sure that's a good thing. But I have studied seven. And one of the things that 
that reason I've never been, never been better is because I've always done the first two. I have no problem asking. I have no problem wanting to learn a language. I have no problem studying it. But it's the knocking part. It's the actually talking with other people, conversing, writing. Why? Because now somebody else knows. Before that, it's just my private thing. But now somebody else knows. We actively pursue. We knock on that door. But understand what this means. We were talking a little bit about this in Sunday school, about how sometimes we conflate things in the Bible. You know, we see Genesis, the people of Israel are in Egypt, open Exodus, one page over, and all of a sudden, they're slaves. We forget that there's over 400 years between the end of Genesis and beginning of Exodus. We forget that this slavery had been going on for decades, if not centuries. We forget that. And it wasn't like Moses came down and had to convince the Israelites that slavery was bad. He didn't have to come down and say, hey guys, there's better ways to live rather than being slaves to the Egyptians. No, they knew it. And they had known it for a long time. We sometimes miss that. We sometimes think that if we do something, that God has to respond immediately, right away, do it right away. And if he doesn't do it right away, you know, we get tired or we get bored or we go to some, somewhere else. Actively pursuing means that we have perseverance. We don't give up. We hang on. Well, if you look in verse 8, he says, For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be open." And what this is telling us is this is a kind of literary device that was often used in Old and New Testament, it was a way to kind of avoid using God's name because, you know, the Jewish people felt God's name was so holy, they, they would rarely speak it, and if they did speak it, if they had to speak it, they would usually put another word in its place. Well, another way to do it was just use passive voice. And that's what's happening here. Passive voice. Everybody who's listening to this when Jesus is saying it, knows what he's saying. When he says, everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be open, they know who's giving. They know the one who's helping the person discover it. They know the one who's opening the door. It's God. And that's the other side of that, that God wants our effort. He wants us to actively pursue. But ultimately, the provider is God. And that's important because if God's not the ultimate provider, we as human beings can quickly begin to think pretty highly of ourselves. It's a reminder of our relationship to him. We do all we can. And in fact, if you're more mature in your faith, 
then you know all that you can is not nearly enough. But you do it anyways. You do it because that's what true faith is. True faith is not doing something because you believe God will, will make it all work out. True faith is doing something because God tells you to do it, whether it will work out or not. And we've kind of gotten this confused in our heads. We, we'll say, yeah, I'll believe as, as, as long as God, you know, at least keeps dangling the carrot in front of me and maybe once in a while I get to take a bite. And we think that's good faith. That's strong faith. But it's not. We do all we can. Because when, when we do that, again, it's a demonstration of faith, but it's also us acknowledging our own limitations. We expect somewhere in the process that God is going to show up in ways that we see and ways we don't see. We expect that if we're being faithful, God is being faithful. But that he's not being faithful in the way we think. He's being faithful to accomplish his purposes. And we don't like that. That's not... That's not the, the, the teachings we want that draw crowds. What if God needs your failure so that there can be a greater kingdom success? What if he needs your sacrifice? What if he needs you to not have all the earthly blessings? Would you be okay with it? Or is it kind of a conditional faith? Yeah, God, I'll follow you, but you know, you, you, you gotta at least, you know, I, I, I don't gotta have a mansion, but hey, you gotta give me something. No. We follow because he's God. We follow because he asks. We don't understand his plan all the time. We don't always get to see the finish line. But we still follow, and we still do. And we know that he is going to provide, but he's going to provide just like he did, like he said in uh, chapter 6. He's going to provide so that his kingdom might be established. I know this is hard to take sometimes. It's hard for us to get it because we've been taught something different, and it sounds, it makes God sound like manipulative or something where he's, he's saying the kingdom is more important than your needs and your wants. You, you get that. Understand that. It's hard. It's not an easy, light, soft, oh yeah, everything's going to be great. And plus, you might not get to see the kingdom happen. Not until later. But in this life, you might just be part of what needs to happen for the next step. We do, it, we do what's right because God says, you see, this is a problem we sometimes have when we start working in the church 
and we start reading things, we read people's books, and we read about all these programs about how to grow a church, and, 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 and you do them, and, and you, you preach the way you're supposed to preach, and you organize the way you're supposed to organize, and then stuff doesn't happen. Or maybe it doesn't happen fast enough. You know, some of you might have even, you know, you're listening to what I'm saying with the churches. And, and you're like, okay, 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 I get it. Um, I, I, I need to start doing those things. And we start doing them. Things don't happen as fast as we'd like. For the kingdom to work, to work, for the kingdom to work the way God wants, for the church to be what God wants the church to be, God has to change our lives. And for some of us, he has to do a lot more changing than others. For some of us, we're so locked into another way of understanding what Christianity is and what, and what the church is that it's going to take a lot. And some of us have been so blissfully ignorant for so many years, we're just... We'll take anything. We're good, you know. There's nothing God has to overcome because we don't have any patterns. We don't have any strongholds. We're, we're ready to receive whatever comes. Either way. Either way. It's God that's got to do the work. That's pretty freeing for me. That's freeing for me because what that tells me is that, you know, I, I can study scripture, I can understand what the, what the Bible teaches us, what the church is, the Bible teaches what a disciple is, and I can preach it, and I can try to live it, and we can try to set stuff up, but thank God, thank God it's not my responsibility to change your heart or change my heart. If that was my responsibility, I'd, I would get another job. I can't do it. And anything I would do would not be good. It wouldn't be healthy. I mean, we could brainwash everybody. We could do that. We could create a cult. We could do that. But no, it's God's work. My work is to be faithful. Your work is to be faithful. And maybe all we get to do is is plow the field. Maybe all we get to do is hook the oxen up to the plow. Maybe all we get to do is let the oxen out of the barn. But we do it. We keep pursuing the kingdom. We keep doing what is right. You know what this calls for? It doesn't just call for perseverance. It calls for patience. I am so glad I'm so glad that, that I, I was not pastor of a church 20 years ago because I had zero patience. I would be like, hey, I've told you. You don't get it. All right, move on. Either I'm going to move on or you're moving on because if you can't see what God is clearly saying, but when we wait on God to change people, you've got to be patient. If you're not patient, then you are taking the place of God. You're saying, they have, people have to change at your pace when you want. 
Finally, that last part, that really important part, where it says, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? A lot of people have tried to find secret meaning in the bread and the fish, and there's really no secret meaning. That was, that was just common food that they ate. It's really this, this I just trying to draw this picture, Jesus trying to draw this picture of something that's obviously good and something that's obviously not good. It's not good to give a kid a serpent. Instead of a fish that will feed the kid, serpent will kill the kid. It's not good to give a kid, you know, a stone. I mean, especially when they need bread. So there's no secret meaning there. It's just this idea of of need. But notice how he says it. How much more will your Father who is heaven give good things to those who ask him? God will give what is good to those who seek what is good. But you have to understand, and perhaps it's better to take that word good out and to say those who seek his kingdom. He will give the kingdom to those who seek the kingdom. See, as soon as we put the word good in there, we define it. We think we know what it means. And we don't. We don't define. We don't decide what is good. Good is good. And it was settled by God forever. If we want to know what is good, we really want to know what is good, we need to take in the whole counsel of God. And we need to rightly interpret it. We need to know good so well that we recognize it as soon as we see it. And we keep coming back to this same point. The reason God, the reason the Father will give us what is good is not just so that we can be good. If God just wanted us to be good, he could have just made us that way, made it permanent. We receive what is good from God so that we might do his kingdom work. We seek the kingdom We receive from God the kingdom. But that's so that we can continue to advance the kingdom. Again, what is the kingdom? It's too much to answer in in a short time. But I always come back to two words. The kingdom can be summarized in two words. It's a summarized in the word of love. But love is not enough because love is like the word good, constantly being redefined. So ambiguous. But it's love. It's it's the love that's defined and described here in Scripture. Second part, holy. The kingdom is holy. The kingdom is, is, is like God in every way that we can be like God. That we as a church are 
both this holiness and love together. That's what we're called to be. Oh, what that looks like, more specifically, not enough time. We've talked about it for almost six, seven months now. But I want you to know that when Jesus is talking about what is good, it's what he's talking about. It's what he's been talking about the whole time. It's about the kingdom. And the kingdom is good.